I imagine most of you have, uh, not all of you, but most of you probably have some kind of Facebook account or go on the internet and use different things on the, on the internet, don't you? And um, it's amazing how we, when you go on the internet now, there are so many different things which are around which just are constantly trying to grab your attention and distract you. They, they, there's the most kind of meaningless news article about this dog which has run away or something equally petty. And there's this incredible headline about it which is trying to grab your attention um, in, in some way or other. Or there's these kind of quizzes and tests and math questions that come up with this header saying, if you can solve this math question, you're a genius. Only one in a hundred can manage it. Anybody ever fallen for one of these kind of things and done the clickbait and, and tapped on it? Yeah, me too. And, and you know, it can be hard to even have confidence in our own identity if we don't see ourselves clearly. If the way that we see ourselves is, is distorted or blurred, if it doesn't match up to reality, then we can find ourselves in problems. It leads to issues of of overconfidence or arrogance or issues of insecurities and and anxieties. And it's not just the case when it comes to, to, to seeing ourselves. If we don't see Jesus clearly, then it can be hard to have confidence in his identity in who he is. Or we think we know who he is, but actually we're operating with this distorted, warped picture that leads us to having wrong expectations or leads us to to having misunderstandings about who Jesus is that can lead us into problems. Having a clear picture of who Jesus is and having a clear picture of our own identity is so important. And so last week we began this new series, Jesus in Focus. And through this series, we're focusing in on, on who Jesus is from the time that he entered into this world and began his ministry right to the time of um, when he, he gave himself and he gave his life for us on the cross. So that you and I and every person on this planet might have the opportunity to be forgiven and to have hope and new life. And before Jesus really began his, his ministry, the, the famous teacher of the day was a guy called John the Baptist. And, and people travelled from all across the nation of Israel to come and see John the Baptist and to, to hear his teaching and not more than that, to respond to his teaching by doing what John the Baptist is famous for, baptising people and getting baptised. And that really was just an outward sign of their decision to to repent, which really just means to turn away from their old way of doing life, to turn away from the wrong things that they were doing and the ways in which they were living against God and to start to turn towards God and living in his ways and following him. And in the midst of all of this, with all of these crowds that came and these people who were responding, John kept always talking and bringing things back and talking about this one who was going to come after him. This one who was going to be greater than him. This one that really everybody was waiting for. And then there's this incredible moment when Jesus turns up. And Jesus, he comes to see John the Baptist and and John simply stops what he's talking about. The crowds are there and he stops what he's talking about. He he stops baptizing people and he looks to the crowd and and he just says, Look! Look at Jesus! Here he is! The one that we've been waiting for! The one that I've been telling you about! And so Jesus, he makes his way down through the crowd and you can imagine people parting for him. This sense of anticipation. Here he is. The one who's greater than John. He's arrived. What's going to happen? 
And, and Jesus is there. And instead of though, taking center stage, instead of suddenly talking to the crowd and teaching them or, or doing these miracles, he turns to John and he insists that John the Baptist baptizes him too. And this must have been a really awkward moment for John. Imagine putting yourselves in, in, in his shoes. He's just been telling this whole crowd about this guy who's going to come, who is greater than him. He even says, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. And then he turns up, and Jesus is insisting that John baptizes him. This is how Matthew writes about it in Matthew chapter 3. He says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? You know, and I kind of understand where John's coming from. He's saying, how can I baptize you? This is a baptism of repentance. This is all about turning away from your, your old way of doing life, and recognizing all your sinful ways and turning away from it, and turning to this new life of, of following God. So how can I baptize you? You don't have any sin. You don't have anything that you need to turn away from. You're already going God's way. I said, John's confused. This isn't the way that he imagined things going when Jesus turned up. So this is what happens next. It reads, Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. There's only so many times he can say no to Jesus. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is an incredible moment in the life of Jesus. It's one of the ways that Jesus is expressing through what he does that he's fully human like us. It's an act of submission and and humble obedience to the Father. And then in this moment of submission, in this moment of humbling himself, in this moment of identifying with humanity and you and me and all of our sinfulness and all of our weakness, in this moment, the heavens are opened. And the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove and rests on him. He is filled with the Spirit. We see in his humanity that Jesus is just as dependent on the Spirit of God as you and I are. And then this voice comes from heaven. The voice of God comes and speaks over Jesus. Look at my son. Look at Jesus. He's my son. I love him. And I am so pleased with him. This is such a precious moment in the life of Jesus. It's a moment when his heavenly father makes his identity clear. When he affirms to Jesus who he is. That he's loved and accepted. And it's this clarity over his identity. This clarity 
over who he is and, and how the Father sees him that becomes the foundation out of which Jesus then ministers. Out of which Jesus is able to serve. Out of which Jesus is able to put other people before himself. Out of which Jesus is able to give his life as a sacrifice. It's this security about his identity and his relationship with the Father that is foundational to everything else. And so Jesus is filled with the Spirit and he's given this clarity as to how God sees him and a clarity about his identity. And this is massive because you see, this is a huge part of what God wants to do in your life and in my life, in our hearts, when we receive the Holy Spirit too. You know, as I look back over, over my life and I think about and remember the different times when I've had encounters with God in a, in a powerful way, the different times when I've been most aware that I'm filled with the Spirit and that God is with me. One of the consistent themes that I see in every single one of those encounters is God showing me something more of His love. God showing me something more of how He sees me. Of how I'm his son. And I'm accepted. And he's pleased with me. And they're some of the most precious moments. When we are filled with the spirit. We receive from God a greater clarity. About our real identity. Not the way that other people see us. Not the way that maybe we sometimes see ourselves. But the way that God sees us. The truth about us. So seeing God clearly and seeing ourselves clearly is so important. And the starting point for it is to be filled with the Spirit. But you know, there's a difference between being filled with the Spirit and operating in the power of the Spirit. You know, when we recognize our our need of of Jesus and we submit to him and we we give our lives to him and we are filled with the Spirit, in that moment, everything changes. In that moment, we are forgiven. In that moment, we're washed clean. In that moment, we're accepted and we're loved and we've become God's children and we're part of his family. In that moment, God looks at us and he doesn't see a sinful person. He, He sees us as people who are holy and blameless because of what Jesus has done. In that moment, everything changes. God's pleased with us and he delights in us. And if you've given your life to Jesus, then that's how God sees you today. That's the reality of our identity. Not because we're anything special, not because I'm anything special, but because of what Jesus has done. That's amazing, isn't it? And nothing can change the fact That this is now our identity. Nothing can change the fact that this is how God sees us. And that we're secure in our relationship with him. But what can happen is that the way that we see ourselves, or what we believe about how God sees us, can become twisted and warped and distorted. It becomes out of focus. And the result is that while we might be people who are filled with the Spirit, there is something which holds us back and stops us from being people who are fully operating in the power of the Spirit. And this is exactly what the devil tries to achieve with Jesus. 
The last thing that the devil wants is for Jesus not only to be filled with the Spirit, but for him also to be operating in the power of the Spirit in order to bring the kingdom of God here on earth. And so straight after his baptism, straight after Jesus has been filled with the Spirit and his heavenly Father has spoken over him, this is my Son who I love and I'm pleased with him. This is what we read happens next in Luke 4. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And in Matthew's account, he adds, you shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then it says, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give all their authority and splendor to you. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God... He said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, Satan can use the Bible too. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him, but only until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. You see, Jesus begins this passage filled with the Spirit, full of the Spirit. And at the end we read that he is operating in the power of the Spirit. But do you see what goes on in between? The whole time... That Jesus is in the wilderness, he is faced with attempt after attempt by the devil to warp and distort his view of God. To warp and distort what he believed about how God sees him. To warp and distort how he saw himself. He is faced with temptation after temptation to shift his security and his identity from his heavenly father and what his heavenly father has said about him and instead to look to his own deeds and his own abilities and who, what he can manage on his own. And this isn't something that, that Jesus just faces for these 40 days in the wilderness. This isn't a one-off thing. Luke writes that the devil only left him until there was another opportune time. These are attacks and temptations that Jesus faced for his entire life. And Satan hasn't changed his tactics. As Satan looks to stop us from being people who operate in the power of the Spirit, we all face the same attacks and the same temptations in our lives too. So what does this kind of temptation look like? Well, you know, when I think of temptation, I often think of, of, of kind of the, the usual kind of desires and pulls and things. I often our thoughts automatically to t- think to turn to things like that. You know, they, they, they turn to that, that, that kind of chocolate which is in the cupboard, which you know you bought for when your friends came around in a few days' time, but you just sat there 
in the evening and oh, it's tempting, isn't it? Or it turns to just having that one more biscuit because you've just made biscuits and they smell so good. Or maybe it turns to the kind of temptation to, to buy something because there's been this thing that you've been wanting for so long and it's reduced. You know, and it'd be rude not to. <laughs> you know, it can be so easy when we're talking about temptation to start talking about all these kind of different things which are really just surface things. But when we look at Jesus and the temptation that he faces, we discover that there are deeper temptations that we're all confronted with. And they are temptations which revolve around how we see God and how we believe God sees us and what it is and how it is that we see ourselves. And so Satan comes along and he's been harassing Jesus for the last 40 days. And in that time, Jesus hasn't eaten. And he's hungry, and he's weak, and he's vulnerable. And Satan says to him, If you are the Son of God, if that's really your identity, if God has really given you that kind of authority and that kind of power, then why are you going hungry? Why are you laying yourself starve? Why don't you just turn this stone here into into bread? And here's Jesus, a a starving man who is is hungry and he has the power and he has the authority to do it. We know that he does because later on in his life we read about how he multiplies and he creates bread. And yet Jesus doesn't do it. He says to Satan, no man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what's really going on here is that Satan is saying to Jesus, if you're really the son of God... Prove it. Do a miracle. And you know, if I was Jesus in this moment, do you know what I would do? I'd go, boom! Here you go! Loaf of bread in your face. Now you believe me. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. And this isn't about the bread. This isn't about being hungry. This is about Jesus being put in this position and saying, prove it. Prove yourself. And he says, no, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So why doesn't he do it? Why doesn't he just turn this stone into bread? Because we know that that wouldn't be a wrong thing to do. He does that later in his life. We know that he eats stuff and he gets hungry because we see that in his life too. So why doesn't he do it? What's wrong with this? And here's what I think. I think that he doesn't do it. The reason is because Jesus had nothing to prove. He doesn't need to to prove himself. He doesn't need to prove himself to himself and he doesn't need to prove himself to Satan. Jesus doesn't have to prove anything because, because think back to that baptism moment. The heavens open up and Jesus is saying, I don't live on bread alone, I live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what are the words that have just come from the mouth of God that are sustaining him? What are the words that have come from the mouth of God? God has declared, this is my son! And I love you. And I'm pleased with you. These are the words that have come from the mouth of God. And they're from the basis of his identity and his security. And mean that he doesn't have to prove himself. Jesus is relying on and resting in what the Father has already said. And you know, Satan can come at us in much the same way that he came at Jesus. And he whispers to us. And he puts doubts in our minds about our identity. 
He tries to make us feel like we're not enough. Like we need to prove things to ourselves and prove things to others. If I could just deal with this sinful habit. If I could just be a bit more like that person. If I could just hear God more clearly. If I could just be a bit more spiritual. Then I could prove to myself and I could have a confidence in and I could prove to other people that I really am a child of God. And this is a very real battle that we can face. It's subtle. I'm making it obvious, but so often it's subtle. But over time what happens is our view of ourselves can get distorted. And we stop seeing ourselves clearly. And we end up spending our lives striving to try to be good enough. Striving to match up. Striving to prove ourselves. And yet the reality is that we can respond in just the same way that Jesus did. We don't have to prove ourselves. When you see yourself clearly, when you realize how God sees you and that's clear and is not distorted anymore, when you understand what God is already speaking over you, that he is saying to you, you are my child, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're accepted. I love you. I'm pleased with you. You are enough. You've already made it. You can rest in every word that comes from the mouth of God. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove. Not to yourself, not to God, not to anybody else. And so Satan, he tries again. And this time Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he says, all of this can be yours if you just bow down and worship me. Now what's really going on here? What's this temptation all about? Well, the whole reason that Jesus came to this earth is in order to gain the world. It's to save the world. That's what it's all about. But in order to do that, in order to to get to that place, he's got to go through suffering and pain and sacrifice, ultimately ending in giving his life on the cross. And it's easy for us to just kind of be dismissive of that and just accept that and just kind of brush over it because it's Jesus and we know it and of course that's the case. But this is a big deal for Jesus. We make it sound like, well, it's, it's Jesus. It doesn't matter. He, it's fine for him. But even at the end of his life, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, on his knees, in tears, crying out to God, God, if there's another way that doesn't involve suffering, let it be that way. I don't want to go through this. It's going to cost me. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. This is tough for Jesus. And so there's a very real cost involved. And so what Satan is doing is he's looking at Jesus and he's saying to him, you can have all that you want. You can gain the world. Here's a shortcut. You don't have to go through pain. You don't have to go through suffering. You can have what God's promised you. You can have it right now. If you just put me before your heavenly father. If you just put me first. 
If you'll just distort your view of God, distort your view of your Heavenly Father, and put other things ahead of Him, then you can have what you want right now. And I think we understand this kind of temptation all too well. I'm sure we've all faced those moments when we think to ourselves, if I just had this or I could just do that, then I'd be happy. God, you've, you've promised me that you want what's best for me. You've promised me that you, you're, you're going to bless me. But you know, I want this. I, I want a relationship. God, I want a, someone in my life who tells me that they love me. I'm not prepared to wait. I'm not pre- prepared to run the risk that that's not part of what your plan is for me. I want to get what I want right now, and so I'm going to take this shortcut. I don't want to, I want to try and skip the pain of waiting or skip the, the suffering of it not being the case and get what I want right now. And if that means putting something else ahead of you, then so be it. And we face this kind of temptation, not only with relationships, but with career and with money and with status and with all kinds of different things, even with momentary pleasures. Will we put it before God? Because we just want it right now. And Jesus responds to to Satan and he says, there is something that matters more than getting what I want. There is something that matters more than getting what I want. Even though it might cost me I'm not willing to let go of or compromise my relationship with my God, my relationship with the Heavenly Father. I'm not willing to put anything before God. He is the only one I will worship. I don't need to, to try and take hold the world in my hands. I don't need to have hold right in this moment right now of everything that it is that I want because I know that the Father is holding me in His hands. And then Satan tries one more time and he he takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem and he says, if you're the son of God, then throw yourself off of the top of the temple and let God save you. If you're really God's son and he really loves you and he really cares for you, then let him prove it. So Satan's tried to, to... distort Jesus' view of himself. He's trying to distort Jesus' view of God and now he's trying to distort Jesus' view of how God sees him. And how many times does Satan whisper these kinds of things to us? If God really cared about you, would he really let that happen? If God really cared about you, He'd give you this, or he'd do that. And Satan will even try and use the Bible and twist and distort God's promises in an attempt to distort not only how we view ourselves and how we view God, but what it is that we believe about how God sees us. To make us feel like we're not enough, to make us feel like God doesn't care. And we all understand this temptation too. Now, how many times have you, you contacted a friend and sent them a message and they've not come back to you and, and suddenly these thoughts start playing on your mind? If they really cared about me, if they were really my friend, they would have replied by now. I must matter so little to them. 
Or a loved one says something thoughtless to you. And it hurts. And we react. How could you say that? If you really loved me, you wouldn't say that. And somehow in that moment, those years of friendship and those years of, of marriage or those years of being in family together and all the different ways that you've, you've shown one another your love for one another and that you're for one another and you, you're there for them. All of that goes out a window in that moment. And instead of seeing clearly, all you can see is the distortion. All you can see is this lack of care and this lack of love. And when we face these times, we have a choice. We can look at the evidence that is in front of us in that moment and think how little we must matter. Or we can look at the evidence of years of friendship or years of marriage and all of the different ways that that love has been shown. All the different ways that they've been there for us, all the different ways that they've shown their, their care. In order to help us to keep seeing clearly. And you know we face the same kind of situation when it it comes to how we believe God sees us. Satan comes along and he drops doubts into our minds. And he tries to persuade us to put God to the test. Tries to persuade us to to make God prove that he loves us. And so we come into God and we pray, God, if, if you really love me, then will you do this? If you really love me, then show me and do that. If you really love me, then take this away. If you really love me, then give me this. But Jesus says, I don't have to throw myself off the temple. I don't have to put God to the test and make him prove himself because I already know what God says about me. I don't need to put God to the test when he has shown his love to me consistently and when he has said to me how he loves me already. And in the same way, what more could God do to prove his love for any of us? God sent his his son to die on your behalf. So that you could be forgiven, so that you could be accepted, so that you could have eternal life, so that you could enter into a relationship with God. God has already told you how much he loves you. He's already given you his His truth about how he sees you through his word in the Bible. He's already told you how precious you are to him and how nothing can separate you from his love. Neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. He's already told you how he'll never leave you or forsake you. He's already told you that, that he will be faithful to you even when you're faithless. There are no, there's no greater proof. There's no greater thing that God can do for us. To prove the fact that he loves us and that he cares for us and he's for us. And so whatever we face and whatever we we go through, we should never give in to the temptation that the enemy brings to us to put God to the test. To question the way that God sees us. We need to allow the truth of how God sees us to stay clear in our minds so that it doesn't get distorted. And so when we look at Jesus, we, we see that he doesn't give in to these temptations and allow pride or, or arrogance 
or selfishness or, or fear or anxiety to come in and to begin to distort the way that he sees himself or distort the way that he sees God or distort the way that he believes that God sees him. His security in his identity isn't based on his circumstances. It isn't based on his popularity with people. It isn't based on what he has or he doesn't have. It isn't based on that moment. When it comes to his security and his identity, he turns his ear to one voice alone. To the voice of his heavenly Father when the heavens are opened, speaking over him. This is my son whom I love. And with him I am well pleased. That's the voice that we all need to hear. We need to be filled with the Spirit and to hear this voice for ourselves again and again and again. To clear away all of the distortions, all of the warped things that come in and to keep our picture clear. To know God saying, you are my child and I love you. You're enough and I'm pleased with you. But what we see with Jesus and what many of us know from our own experience is that to keep that clear picture of our identity, of who we are and who God is and how God sees us is a very real battle. As we go through life, the devil is constantly looking for those opportune moments to come at us and to distort that. To distort that reality. To distort how we see ourselves or how we see God or how we believe that God sees us. Because while he can't do anything to stop God from loving us, he can't do anything to stop us being people who are filled with the Spirit, he is going to do everything in his power to try and cripple us and to stop us being effective and to stop us from being people who operate in the power of the Spirit. The last thing the enemy wants is to have people on this earth operating in the power of the Spirit to see God's kingdom come on this earth. And so we need to be on guard. And we need to do what what Jesus does every time the enemy comes at him. We need to be able to turn our ear to that one lone voice. To look to, to what is written in the Bible. To know the promises God has spoken, the way it is that he sees us. To remind ourselves continuously of all that Jesus has done for us. To know God speaking over us, you are my son, you're my daughter, and I love you, and I am pleased with you. To know that every good thing we have in this life is from God. To know that he has promised to be our strength even when we're feeling weak. To know that he's promised that he is faithful to forgive us every time we come to him. There's never a time that he'll turn us away. To know that God looks at us and he he sees us as holy and blameless and precious. To come back to God again and again and make him Lord in our lives and refuse to put anything before him. 
to keep putting him first, to keep putting him on the throne. And as we do that, as we keep things clear in the way that we see God and relate to him, in the way that we see ourselves, in the way that we, we believe of what God, how God sees us, I will begin, believe that we will begin to see the lies of the enemy broken. We will begin to see people set free. We will begin to see anxieties and fears gone. We will begin to see proud people humbled. And we will begin to be people who are not only filled with the Spirit, but who are operating in the power of the Spirit. And it's not always easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus. We read over it and it's a story we're so familiar with and think, well, yeah, it's Jesus, it's easy for him. It wasn't easy for Jesus. This was tough. And it can be tough for us. It's a very real battle. But when we come to that place, when we're not focused on ourselves, but we are relying on God and living for God and trusting God, then I believe that we will see a greater freedom in our own lives. And we will see a greater way in which God is working through us to bring freedom to others. That's what I want for my life, and I know it's God's best, and I know it's his desire, I know it's what life to the full looks like for us to be people who are filled with and operating in the Spirit, so it's what I want for your life too.